Well, good morning. If you are new to Freedom, what we typically do is we typically teach through books of the Bible. And currently we are going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we are continuing in Mark 12 today. Uh, so you can go ahead and find that passage for just in just a few minutes. We'll dig into this text. Um, but we are still in, in the middle of Passion Week. And so we are walking through this final week of Jesus' life called the Passion. And this is a week that changed everything. And we are on Tuesday of that week. Now, we have been on Tuesday for several weeks now in our teaching because a lot happens on Tuesday of Passion Week. See, on Tuesday of Passion Week, Jesus has five confrontations with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And Jesus is, through these confrontations, is really leading up to his crucifixion. And the first four confrontations that Jesus has are attacks by his enemies. They're coming at him. They're asking him questions. They're questioning his authority. They're coming at him with political questions and theological questions and religious questions. And the whole purpose of them asking those questions of Jesus is to trap him. Is to get him to say the wrong thing. So that they can hold it against him and so that they can... They can shift the influence that he has among the people away from Jesus and back to them. And so they begin with the priests, the scribes, and the elders. They come to Jesus and they question his authority in Mark 11. Now Jesus refuses to get into the debate with them. If you remember that story, he asked them, Hey guys, what about John's baptism? Was it from God or was it from man? And Jesus says, if you don't answer that question, I won't tell you by which authority that I do the things that I do. Why did he do that? Because he knew that they had no desire, no interest whatsoever in following Jesus. They had no interest whatsoever in submitting to his authority. So Jesus refuses to get into debate with them. He exposes their unwillingness to know the truth. Next, they send the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus. And they come with a political question. Is it okay to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, none of us like paying taxes, right? So we wish Jesus would have said, no, do not pay taxes. But that's not what he said. What Jesus said was, give me a denarius. So they hand him a coin. It was the coin that they would have to give as a tax. And on that coin was a picture of Caesar. So Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. What he's saying is that what belongs to Caesar, you give, you obey, but give your whole life, everything you are, to God. And then he goes on, they, they, they walk away, kind of slide back into the shadows, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and then they send the Sadducees. And the Sadducees come with a theological question. See, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. So they come to Jesus with a question this conundrum about the resurrection in order to trip him, in order to trap him, in order to disprove the resurrection, disprove the afterlife. So Jesus, in that encounter with them, destroys their argument by taking them to the Torah, which the Torah was the first five books of the Bible. It was the only five books of the Bible that the Sadducees believed and the, and the Sadducees held as God's word. So he takes them to Exodus 3, verse 6, and he blasts their ideas about the resurrection and the afterlife out of the water. 
Then the, the next, they send a scribe, and the scribe comes with a religious question. Now, the scribe was the only one of these four confrontations that was curious. He actually literally wanted to know what Jesus thought, what Jesus believed, what Jesus wanted to, to, to say about the greatest commandment. So he says, Jesus, out of all the commandments, which one is the greatest? And Jesus takes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 and puts them together. Now, Deuteronomy 6, everyone agreed that that was the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then everybody's like, that. that's it. But then Jesus does something they didn't expect. He took Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself, and melded the two together. To love God and to love your neighbor, that is the greatest commandment. And with those words, Jesus has given us both personally and corporately as a church, our marching orders, that we are to love God and to love others. And so Jesus, in these encounters, regardless of the nature of their question, regardless of what they threw at him, Jesus handled every single question incredibly well. He left his enemies without any ammunition to throw at him. They, could, they had nothing that they could use against him. In fact, Mark says in his gospel, in Mark chapter 12, verse 34, he concludes this whole section of these four controversies with this thing. He said, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. Like they tapped out. They're like, we're done. He's blasted us and, and with every answer. He, we can't do anything to trap him. So they just stopped. Stopped asking him questions. Well, now it's Jesus' turn. They've asked the questions. Now Jesus is going to ask his question of them. But Jesus doesn't just ask any question. He asks the question. Jesus asks the question that every single one of us must wrestle with. Jesus asks the question that every single one of us must answer for ourselves. The question Jesus asks describes centers around the identity of the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And he's going to put it up front and, and right in their face of who is the Messiah. So look at Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself. In the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So, here's the question. How is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, what is happening here is Jesus is teaching in the temple. What's interesting about this, this is Jesus' final public sermon. Beginning in chapter 13, Jesus is going to be dealing strictly with the disciples. He's only going to be teaching the disciples, kind of his final teaching, his Olivet Discourse that we call it. And so Jesus, beginning in 13, is going to be dealing with the disciples. But this, this moment, is his final public sermon. He's not going to preach publicly again after chapter 13, we get into the story of his crucifixion, his arrest, his betrayal, his resurrection. So this, this section, this sermon, and the events that will happen we'll talk about next week, close out Jesus' public ministry. 
They close out what he's doing with the crowds. And you may be wondering, if this is Jesus' final sermon, if this is the final message that he's going to preach, what text will he preach from? Like, what's he going to pick? What scripture is he going to use for his final sermon? And Jesus is preaching publicly about who he is. This is the question that Mark has set out to answer from the very beginning. Right? If you remember, all the way back to week one, Mark 1.1 says this, this is the gospel of, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So from the very beginning, Mark has been establishing for us the fact that Jesus is God's Son, that the Messiah must be the Son of God. Now, throughout our study of Mark, we've had demons confess his identity, haven't we? We've seen demons come to him and say, what do you have with us, Jesus, Son of David, Son of God? We've had miracles and displays of power proving his divinity throughout our study of Mark. In fact, in Mark 8, Jesus gathers with his disciples privately, if you remember, and he asks them, who do people say that I am? They say, well, they give all these prophets and all these things. But then he asks them the personal question. He goes, okay, who do you say that I am? And the disciples declare, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And so now what we have in this text is Jesus publicly in the middle of the temple, in the middle of everyone, in the middle of the crowd, telling everyone there the moment of truth has arrived. This is who I am. I am the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus knows that this question and this revelation that he gives to the scribes will ultimately lead to his demise. Because the chief priest will come back in just a few weeks as we look at it and they will ask him to clarify the statements that he makes today. That he is the Christ. And so what does Jesus choose? He chooses Psalm 110 as his text to preach in this message. Of all the scripture that Jesus could choose, he chooses Psalm 110. Now, and this is a good psalm to preach from from in 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 the identity of the Messiah. This is a messianic psalm. But at first glance, when you read it, it's it's kind of confusing, isn't it? Like the, the Lord said to my Lord, you shall sit at, uh, you shall sit at the throne beside me and, and in my right hand and you'll put your enemies under your feet. I mean, it's kind of confusing. It's, it's kind of an academic text. It's, it's kind of a, a technical text. So, so why would Jesus choose Psalm 110 to be his final preached sermon? Well, before we dive into this, what he says, I want us to I want you to notice one really important thing. And I want you to notice Jesus' view of Scripture that is evidenced in this text and what he says. You see, here, what we see Jesus doing, we see Jesus believing in the authority of Scripture. We see Jesus believing in the inspiration of Scripture, the unity of Scripture, and therefore the need to expound and teach Scripture. Let's talk about the authority of Scripture. 
Jesus is, is pointing out that the Bible, this book that we have, is God's word. And why do we know that? Because if anyone could preach a sermon without using the Bible, a text, it would be Jesus, right? Like if you've got a pastor or a preacher that's not using the Bible to teach from, that's not a good thing. But Jesus could do that because he's the author of this book. So if he wants to say whatever he wants to without opening the Bible, he could do it. But he uses a text. Why? Because he believes in the authority of Scripture. He believes that the Bible is the Word of God for us. And so Jesus uses the Bible. And he uses the Bible to explain who he is. So not only does he believe the authority of Scripture, he believes in the inspiration of Scripture. Jesus believes in the inspiration of Scripture. Look what he says. He says, David said this, said what? Said Psalm 110 in the Holy Spirit. In other words, David said these words by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is pointing out that this word, God's word, is the inspired word of God. That God has spoken by his Holy Spirit to men. And men then turned and wrote down what, Jesus, what the Holy Spirit had told them to write. So he is declaring for all to hear, this is the inspired word of God. But not only that, he's, you look at the unity of Scripture. The fact that Jesus goes to an Old Testament text, Psalm 110, he is showing us that all of Scripture fits together. That the Bible is, is 66 books, but it's telling one unified story. The Bible is 66 books, inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaking through men that would write these words to tell one story. And that one story is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think about it. The Old Testament points to him. The Gospels reveal him. The epistles point back to him. And the book of Revelation tells us that each and every one of us should be looking for him to return. The entire Bible is all about Jesus, his person, and his work. And so what Jesus is showing us here is his view of Scripture. That it is authoritative. That it is inspired. That it is unified, and therefore, it must be explained and taught. Which is, which is because of Jesus' view, that's, that's why we practice and preach and teach what, the way we do at Freedom. That's why we take books of the Bible, and we walk through them verse by verse, because we believe that if God wrote a book, then we should want to learn it. That if God wrote a, work, a book, we should want to teach it the way he wrote it. The way he inspired it. And so we want to preach it. We want to teach it. This is not a new idea. It's nothing creative or unique, the fact that we go through books of the Bible. It is just based on this belief that if God wrote a book, we should want to learn it. Study it. Teach it. And not just that, but study it for ourselves. All of it. Not just the parts that we like. But every bit of it. Which is why on February 27th, I can't encourage you enough to get involved and sign up 
for this class on how to study the Bible. So I don't know, maybe you've been there, maybe you're like, I don't know what to do when it comes to studying the Bible. Anybody ever been there? Like I open the book, I'm like, I don't know where to start. Well, this class, six weeks, we're going to teach you where to start. We're going to help you walk through the study of Scripture. One of our elders, Robert Alexander, has been working on this, 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 this teaching, and it's going to be incredibly powerful. And, and we're going to partner together. We're going to teach you how to study God's Word for yourself, on your own. Not that you, not that you, so that you won't have to go to Scripture and say, I don't know where to begin. I don't know what to do. I just encourage you, it's going to be 9 o'clock for six weeks. A six-week commitment so that you can begin to learn how to study God's Word. So that it begins to get in you so that it flows out of you. And so Jesus shows us that, that this is what he believes about the text, about the Scripture. Now let's look at what he says. So he's setting up his final sermon based on Psalm 110. What's interesting is this is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. In fact, it's the most quoted Old Testament text in all of the New Testament. 33 times Psalm 110 is referenced or quoted in the New Testament. Pretty amazing, isn't it? That this is the text Jesus uses. And so this is... This is a very important psalm. It is revealing that Jesus is the greater David. That Jesus is the greater king. And what he's showing us by this sermon to the scribes, he asks them this question. He begins with this question. He says, how can you say that the Christ is the Son of God? Now, he's, what is he doing? In this moment, he's giving them Old Testament scripture. He's getting them to think about the Old Testament scripture. The scripture that they'd studied their, their entire lives. They had devoted themselves to studying scripture. And so what he's doing, he's just reminding them of what they've studied. He's getting them to think about the Messiah. He's getting them to think about all the prophecy and all the things. What's he doing? He's just establishing what they already believe. The scribes, the Pharisees, they believed that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. This is nothing new. What Jesus is showing them is nothing new. The Davidic sonship of the Messiah is firmly established throughout the Old Testament. You can go to 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, Isaiah 9 and 11, Jeremiah 23, 30 and 33. You can also go look at Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Micah, and many other passages that all point to the fact that the Messiah must come from the lineage of David. So on this first question, all of them would agree that yes, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, must be a descendant of David, and he will reign forever on David's throne. They all agreed with that. Every single one of the scribes would have agreed with that. They'd have been nodding their heads. Yep, you're right, Jesus. And then he quotes Psalm 110. Again, nothing new. They all believed this was a messianic psalm. But here's what happens. Jesus raises a question that blew their theological minds. Look what he does. He raises this question, and they would have never thought of it on themselves. And he says, And David himself declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And in verse 37, 
David calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now think about this. What father, what grandfather, what great-grandfather would call their son, their grandson, their great-grandson Lord? Any of you got any of you dads do that? No. No, we're not nobody's going to call their son Lord unless that son is God himself. Unless that son is divine. So David's words, get this, David's words in Psalm 110 don't make any sense if the Messiah is merely human. They don't make any sense. Because look what he says. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai. If you go to the Greek, it says, my, the Lord Yahweh, that is God, says to my Lord, Adonai, that is Christ. In other words, God said to Christ, therefore, the Messiah must be more than human. The, the Messiah must be divine. So Jesus is showing them from the Old Testament scripture that the Messiah is both divine and human. And the Messiah must be both God and man in order to fulfill the scriptural requirements for the Messiah. It's amazing, isn't it? What Jesus does by taking this text and expounding on it he is blowing their minds. They'd never, no one had ever thought about this idea. No one had ever questioned Psalm 110 in this way before Jesus did. And so he is showing them that the Messiah is David's son and therefore human. But he's also God's son and therefore divine. And Jesus in this moment is saying, That is who I am. I am the Messiah. I am both from the lineage of David, and I'm also God's son. Now, this is obviously the heart of our faith, isn't it? That Jesus is God's son. The question we all have to ask ourselves, who is Jesus Christ? If we don't get that question right, nothing else in life makes sense. If we don't understand the fact that Jesus is God's son, then nothing else matters. Jesus is the Son of God, therefore it changes everything. So Jesus chose this topic, and he chose Psalm 110 as his final sermon because obviously this is a big deal. This is a big, big deal. This is something we have to grasp. We have to understand. If we don't get this answer right, it doesn't matter what answers in life you get. They're all going to be wrong. Because the, the, our eternity hinges on what we believe about the Messiah. Our eternity hinges on who we believe Jesus Christ is. And so we need to see Jesus not as a good moral teacher, not as another religious leader, but, the, but we need to see Jesus as the one and only Messiah, the one and only Savior of the world, the only one who was both God and man. 
That's who Jesus is. And that's who he's proclaiming to be in his final sermon. And that proclamation will ultimately lead to his crucifixion. Now, if you're here today and you're not yet convinced, if you're like, Eric, I, I just don't buy into that stuff. Maybe you're watching online. Maybe you're here live and you're like, I don't. I, don't, I just don't know if I get it. I don't know if I buy into it. Here's the first thing I want you to know. Keep coming. Keep searching. Keep asking questions. Don't give up. Don't stop. We are so glad you are here or you're watching online. The second thing I want you to see is read the Bible and get to know the biblical Jesus. Jesus uses the Bible in order to reveal who he is. The problem is there are a lot of false pictures of who Jesus is out there. There's a lot of really bad pictures of who Jesus is. And so what Jesus is showing us, and he's showing us a pattern from this text. He's saying, if you want to understand me, read the Bible. If you want to understand who I am, read this book. Don't go look on TikTok. Don't check out YouTube videos. Don't even listen to the pastor. Read this book to understand who I am. Verify everything that the pastor says about who I am by reading this book for yourself. That's what Jesus is saying. And then his sermon shifts. So he says, this is who I am. And then he almost gives a challenge to, hey, if you want to know who I am, read the book. Read the Bible. Get to know me. Get to know the biblical me. But then he gives a warning. The second half of his sermon, he gives a warning to anyone who will take him up on that offer. So any one of us who say, you know what, you know what, I'm going to, Jesus, I'm going to read the Bible to discover who you are. Here's what Jesus says. If you do that, you will have greater accountability in your life. You'll be held responsible for what you discover about me. Listen, one of the most dangerous places you can go is a Bible-believing church that preaches the gospel of who Jesus Christ is. Why? I'm going to show you in Jesus' sermon why I believe that. Because, see, each time you hear God's Word taught, each time you hear who Jesus is revealed, your accountability before Him goes up. It increases. And we have to be careful not to have this religious pride creep in. Say, oh, I got all the answers. I got it all down. I've seen far too many Christians at this point that the more they know about Jesus, the less they actually live and behave and act like Jesus. And that is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Where we get to this point where the more we know about him, the less we live like him. And church, let's be honest, we see this a lot when it comes to new Christians. I mean, new people get saved, they come to know Jesus, I mean, they're fired up. They're excited to follow him. They want to soak in all they can about who Jesus is. They want to tell their friends all about who this Jesus is that they've just met. But what happens over time? They get to know more and more about Jesus. And that fire begins to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. That is a scary, scary place to be based on the warning that Jesus gives us in this text. Look what he says in verse 38. He says, and in his teaching, he said, beware 
of the scribes. What's he saying? Beware of the religious folks. Beware of those who think they know me. Beware of the ones who have studied and think they know the scripture. Beware of them. Why? They like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. And they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Look what he says. They will receive the greater condemnation. Why does Jesus condemn the scribes? I think we see three reasons in this text, and these reasons should serve as a warning for each and every one of us that these are practices, church, we must avoid. We need to run away from them like the plague. And the first one is, it says they live for the attention of others. Look what it says. He says, beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes. Let's be honest, beware of anyone who walks around in a robe. Like I almost picture that moment in Christmas vacation, you know, where Cousin Eddie's out there in the street in his robe. Like, beware of that dude. Like, Jesus shouldn't have to say this, but here's what he's actually saying. See, the scribes would walk around in these really long white robes, and they had these prayer tassels flowing off of their robes. What were they doing? They were saying, hey, everybody, look at me. Look how spiritual I am. Look how godly I am. He's saying, hey, I want your attention. Look at me. And so they craved the recognition of others. They wanted people to see them and admire them for their godliness. For their holiness. Because of what was on the outside. But as we will see, what was on the inside was dead and empty. They demanded that people acknowledge them. They expected that people would rise and greet them with honor. It'd be like me coming up here to preach and like all of you have to stand up and honor me. That would be stupid. That'd be ridiculous. All I am is a man just like you. I just happen to have a microphone. That's the difference. Like I don't have this super spirituality that you can't have because you're not a pastor. But yet the scribes lived that way. They behaved in such a way that they wanted everybody to think they had it all together. They wanted everyone to look at them and think that they were important. So they strutted around with these long white robes, these tassels flowing off of them. They're saying, look at me, look at me, look how spiritual I am. They were all about status, all about position, all about titles. So the first warning Jesus says is, listen, don't live for the attention of others. We don't apply that text too much to spiritual things, but it happens, doesn't it? Like, look at me, I'm serving in this area, or I'm doing this because I want people to look at me. I want people to recognize it. I want people to acknowledge it. But not only that, they were pompous and entitled. He says they, 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 they made life all about them. These religious scribes, their life was all about them. They had this mentality that they deserved, that they deserved to be uh, treated in, 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 a, in a way that put them on a pedestal. They acted like A-list celebrities. A-list religious celebrities. Well, I don't even know if that's a thing, but it, it seems like a thing. Because look what it says. It says that they would, they would like, they like the greetings of the marketplace. But verse 39, and they would have the best seats in the synagogues and the best 
and the places of honor at the feast. So what is he saying? He says they wanted to be front and center of everyone. They, they had this entitlement that if they walked into the synagogue, that they would sit up front. And the way the synagogue was designed was very similar to the way we design churches today. They would have this big box, and it would contain the scrolls. And there would be seats right in front of it. And the, the synagogue, in the synagogue, the scribes would come and sit on the front facing the congregation. So they would look at you and say, oh, well, yeah, yeah, y'all aren't near as spiritual as I am. Y'all don't have it together near. Look at my white robe. Look at my prayer tassels. You bunch of losers. That's kind of the way they would do. It almost reminded me of, of, I remember when I first started ministry, you know, they had those two seats on the stage in a Baptist church. I hated those because I was always afraid I was going to fall asleep during the pastor's sermon. But it almost feels like that kind of deal, doesn't it? It's like you just sit up front, everybody looks at you, and you have to, you know, if you're sitting up front, man, you've got to raise your hands right at the right time. Like at the, when the right chord hits the guitar, you've got to go, oh, praise Jesus. You've got to put on this show. That's who the Pharisees were. I mean, the scribes were. The Pharisees were that also. But Jesus already addressed this, hasn't he? He has said, the greatest among you shall be what? The least, a servant. Whoever exalts himself will be what? Humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So these guys, they were pompous. They were entitled. But not only that, the third thing is they were religious fakes. They were hypocrites. They were all show and no substance. It says they devoured widows' homes. What does that mean? They didn't just go around looking for widows and like burn their house down. But here's what they would do. These scribes are often called lawyers. They were legal experts in the Old Testament law. And they would often serve as estate planners for widows. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about the whole purpose of the Leverite marriage was to keep the inheritance intact. So what these scribes would do is that they would serve as this estate planner for a widow and they would convince the widow to maybe set aside some of their inheritance for the scribe they would convince these poor widows these Ill these illiterate widows because very few people could read they were illiterate and they would they would convince them that by supporting the temple or supporting the scribe himself they were actually serving God. They were using religion for profit. And so Jesus says, you devour widows' homes. But also look what he says. He says, you also say long prayers with pretense. Isn't that great? Like these guys would say these long prayers in public. And they would say these long prayers and use all these theological words. Like, they had all the big words. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, you know what? If you hear somebody say a really long prayer in public, that probably means they're not praying that much in private. They're trying to catch up. <laughs> That's what they would do. They would pray these really long theological prayers. They had all these eloquent and impressive words. And the problem is Jesus judged them as empty. He says... Your private prayer closet 
is vacant. And you're using these public prayers as show, but there's no substance. Listen, church, Jesus does not care about the length of your prayers. I've heard so many Christians say, you know, I just don't know what to pray. I don't know what words to use. Get, let me, I want you to understand this. Jesus doesn't care what words you use. What he cares about is a sincere and humble heart that is, in, that is bowed down before him. That is speaking to him. That's what he cares about. He's after a humble heart offering sincere prayer. He doesn't care about the words you use. He doesn't care about the length of your prayer. And we see this pattern throughout Scripture. Where Jesus points out people that, that, that pray these seemingly small prayers. Like the, the sinner who said, God, just have mercy on me. While the religious guy was saying all these eloquent words. And thank God I'm not like that guy. Which prayer did Jesus say was answered? Was heard? The prayer of the guy who simply said, God, have mercy on me. Jesus doesn't care about the length of your prayers. What he cares about is, is the sincerity and the humility of your heart. But Jesus goes on, he says, God will judge with special severity hypocritical religious leaders and hypocritical religious people who strut around with, with religious piety, who abuse the less fortune and, and traffic in false worship that is no show, that is all show and no substance. Jesus is warning us not to crave the attention of others. And listen, this can happen within the church too, can it? Like this craving of attention. Like, hey, if I post this Bible verse on, on Instagram, then maybe people, I'll get a ton of likes and they'll see how spiritual I am. While we go and live unlike the Bible verse we just posted on, on Facebook or Instagram. Listen, we're not to crave the attention of others. But he's also warning us not to live entitled like those in our culture. Listen, we live in an entitled culture. People who think they deserve yeah, the best of something. Here's the reality. What you and I deserve is condemnation. What we deserve because of our sin is separation from God. What God has given us through the gift of his son Jesus is eternal life. That's what we deserve. And he says, stop being, it's a warning not to be religious hypocrites that are all show and no substance. Nothing in this world is more obnoxious to God than self-righteous hypocrisy and an outward show of religion with no inward change. Nothing is more obnoxious to him. That's what Jesus is showing us. Instead, what should we pursue? Church, we should pursue humility. Humility is the Christian ethic. That is the calling that Jesus has given to each and every one of us. To walk in humility before him. That is an example that Christ gave to us. In Philippians, what does Paul say? He says, Christ showed us this example of humility to the point of death on the cross. But he also gives us these words. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look at, let each of you look not, on for your, not, not only for your own interests, 
but also the interest of others. God opposes the proud, but does what? Gives grace to the humble. Martin Luther said this. He said, water, or he said grace is like water. It always flows to the lowest point. Isn't that good? Like if you and I need grace, which I do, I desperately need grace. What does that mean? It means I got to get low. I got to get humble. I have to walk in humility. And if I'm not willing to walk in humility, I'm not going to experience grace. So we, you and I need to get low. We need to walk humbly in order to experience the grace that God offers. Our study in this text should encourage us. It should encourage us to ask a couple of questions. First, what place does God's word have in my life? And secondly, why do I serve God? Is God's word the authority of your life? Do you know it? Do you read it? Do you study it on your own? Or is it just collecting dust on the nightstand? Jesus believed in the authority, inspiration, and unity of Scripture. He shows us that we should be studying it for ourselves. We should be expounding it when we gather together to worship as a church. What is your view of Scripture? And secondly, why do you serve God? Why do you volunteer in the church? To be seen by others? To try to look holy so that all people can notice it? To try to act like you've got your act together? No, we serve Him just to honor Him. But if that's our motive, we need to examine that. And we need to question that. And finally, he says, the biggest question of all, the greatest question of all that we all have to ask ourselves is who do you think, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus to you personally? Jesus said in this text, he said, I'm both God and man. He's both David's son and David's savior. The question is, is Jesus both your Lord? And your Savior. That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Let's pray. Jesus, I believe in this text that you've given us no room to sit on the fence. You have shown us very clearly who you are, that you are the Messiah, that you are both Lord and Savior. That you were God and man. And Jesus, you humbled yourself to the point of death on the cross. And you did it for our sin. And so Father, I pray that if anyone here has never placed their faith in you, they've never said, yes, Jesus is my Lord. Yes, Jesus is my Savior. That today will be the day of salvation. That today will be the day that they say yes to Jesus. Whether you're online or in person, all you have to do is simply say, Jesus, I believe and I place my faith in you. I believe that your death on the cross, your resurrection is sufficient for my salvation. I want to repent of my sin and I want to follow you for the rest of my life. Lord, I pray for anyone who is praying that prayer or contemplating that. Lord, I pray that you give them the strength to talk to the people that, they, that invited them, to talk to the people that they came with so that we can help them take their next step in their faith journey. And for those of us who are your followers, thank you so much for the encouragement of this text to remind us of who you are and why you came.
Help us understand the authority, the inspiration, and the unity of Scripture. And to give us a warning not to live our spiritual lives to be seen by others. Not to live our spiritual lives with, no, with all show and no substance. Not to live our spiritual lives with the entitlement that we deserve anything, but rather to walk humbly before you. And give us strength to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.